Thank you so much for joining everybody and Susan, great to have you. Now there's a lot to get started, but first I just want to go through the regular opening dialogue. Thank you all for joining another Inventive Minds workshop hosted by Adam Stavis, your youth development mentor and coach. Inventive Mind Child Youth and Family Support Center is a not-for-profit organization. Today's workshop topic is how separation and divorce can affect children emotionally all the way through adulthood. I think it would be valuable for me to share some of my own personal experience working with families, going through a separation, going through a divorce. Can I have a whole youth development program as a tool to open up doors to be able to help youth better understand themselves, better understand their place in the world, help them navigate through some emotional struggles they may be having, some psychological difficulties they may be having when it comes to anything at all. Soon is a way for me to kind of bond with the children, help them out in a variety of other ways. I've dealt with quite a few families. I mean, I've taught over 3,000 children now across the world in the last 18 years. So I've done a lot of work with families and I have sort of a team mentality with families, whatever they're going through. I try to encourage them to be open with me because that just helps me be able to teach them and get better results with them and also helps me better understand how their, how their children are kind of navigating through things and then helps me be an additional tool for the family to help their children navigate through their challenges. The families that I've worked with that are going through separation and divorce, I'm very obvious that something is going on with the children because of their interaction with me, their interaction with their siblings, their interaction with their, with their parents, especially if they're still living in the same house together and they're trying to sort things out. Helping the whole family, not just children, but helping the whole family be able to sort through things a little bit more to express themselves is really important, especially in their early stages in their development. That's been some of my personal experience. I had a family that I was teaching for five years before there was all of a sudden something very obviously different about their child. Their child came down one day to do the lesson, did not want to talk to me at all, which was vastly different than how they behaved with me before. Just head down, didn't want to pick up their instrument, was obviously very upset. I did what I could with the strategies and tools I have and I use to be able to help their child navigate through what they were going through at the time, not knowing what was actually happening later on sitting down with the parents to find out that yeah they're actually going through a separation sitting down with them having a few sessions to try and figure out exactly what they wanted my role to be in this especially somebody being in their home at the time my role going to be not just helping their child understand how to play an instrument but definitely working through some emotional difficulties because without working through that they were not going to be learning anything at all. And then the time with me just would be a waste. Giving them the option to choose whether or not they wanted to have me help in some sort of way or not. And that's fine. So they chose to have me help out and it did work out very nicely in terms of their child having me as somebody who they felt was a little bit of a safe, non-biased place to go to just to talk about some stuff if they need to. And knowing that it was safe in a way where I wouldn't be going back to their parents and talking to them. And the parents knew that. I would tell them like, I can be this sort of sounding board for your child if you'd like, but your child has to feel safe to come to me with stuff unless there's something that you have to know about for obvious reasons. And of course I'm going to tell you, but if it's just something they just need somebody to talk to, of course I can do that for them. And that helped them a lot. I noticed a huge change in their behavior and emotion, at least when I was around. I don't know what it was like specifically when I was not around besides the stuff that the child was telling me or the parents would tell me. This sort of seemed like a, a relief to know that ah, somebody is 
somebody's here now and I can just be myself and talk and not feel judged and that sort of thing. That's been some of my experience. There's been a lot of other experiences I've had, but I don't want to take up too much time because of course, way more importantly than anything I can ever contribute, I believe is we have Dr. Susan Hopkins here who has so much to talk about, so many vital things and important things to discuss. So many questions I have for Susan. If you are not familiar with Dr. Susan Hopkins, I definitely suggest you check out the website uh, self-reg.ca. Susan has an awesome blog, especially the most recent post that she has about the, the four quadrants, uh, self-reg, collect, connect, detect, and protect. Let's just get right into it. Dr. Susan Hopkins is executive director for the Merit Center. She will be discussing how to help children cope with trauma associated with separation and divorce. So welcome. welcome. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. This you is very great. good on the four quadrants and they don't come in any particular order. So. <laughs> okay. That's good. And I know in that video, you were describing specifically educators and teachers, what they can do, but a lot of that stuff is easily translatable, I believe, to parents and guardians of children too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, the science is the same. That just happens to be from a handbook for educators. So that's why it's school focused, but cool. uh, very happy to be here. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thank you. So let's start off by tell us about yourself and the Self-Reg Institute. Sure. It's called the Merit Center and that's an acronym, M-E-H-R-I-T and philanthropist that invested in research looking at children with autism and self-regulation. This is over a decade ago. The founder of our organization, Dr. Stuart Shanker was at the Merit Center. So I run that organization. We are based in Peterborough, but we have team members across the country. We work internationally. We work in the early years, schools. We work with seniors, hospitals, medical staff, and lots to do with parenting as well. My background is an educator. That's what I always sort of think of myself as first. I've worked in every grade in the school system, and I was early childhood and kindergarten coordinator for the Northwest Territories. Kindergarten curriculum, which is where I met Dr. Stuart Shanker about a decade ago now, found my way eventually here to running this organization. But I'm also a mom, and I'm a mom who raised her kiddo, who's now 13, just single mom almost the entire time. My degrees are all in education. My work is all around supporting others and understanding stress and how to embrace it and the process of self-regulation and how we can use it to be happier, healthier, figure out how to respond and support our children and the kids that we work with. But it's also very personal. I've been through this and still there. We, my daughter's dad still lives in another province and still deal with some of the things that many of the folks that are interested in this topic are reaching out to us for. We also have an international Institute to selfregglobal.com. It's new-ish, but we do work in uh, several countries around the world. I'm part of that one as well. Nice. So not only do you have the professional experience that helps you with all this, obviously the background in it, but also personally, because of some things that you've been through, that has also helped you a lot. So you've got the full spectrum of knowledge that one needs to have in order to be able to address some of these very important and vital tools, I believe. How can Selfreg support parents and children that are going through separation and divorce? Self-reg is a framework. I have lots of experience and background and I have degrees, but I'm also pretty good at being oh so human. It does not mean that I'm perfect. And in fact, if anything, my path has been a lot like this. My teenage years were like this. I've, you know, gone up and down and around in all sorts of different ways. And that that self-reg is 
the science of understanding stress and well-being. It's really about our central nervous system in part and how our brain bodies work together within relationships. And it gave me freedom. It allowed me to understand things that I haven't been able to understand before. It allowed me to look at the science, look at children when they're not doing well, the kids that are getting in trouble all the time in school or the families that were struggling the most, but also myself. I wasn't the perfect mom or the perfect parent or the perfect human being. So to beginning to look at it differently. So it's science of stress, but it's using the definition of self-regulation. There's 447 different definitions in the literature. It's a lot. And it's why people are confused. Even if you're all from Ontario and you have kids in school, you've gotten a report card like I have on mine that about self-regulation based on our work. It's Dr. Stuart Shanker's work. And yet it's not self-regulation. It's some version of self-control, self-management, grit, social, emotional learning, self-regulated learning, and all of those. It's not that those are not important. But what do we do when they're not available? So if you've ever tried to set a goal for yourself, you're going to run a marathon and you did it and you did it and you did it until one day you just did what happened or you the latest diet we were going to do or when we have a moment when we've had all this empathy for everybody, then we go home at the end of the workday and we're snappy at our own kids. Like, where did it go? Because we're not good humans. No, there's if you understand what's going on in the brain and body, we have finite resources and it's a very complex dynamic system. We don't have to know all of that. We just have to know there's more of this story going on and it explains and it makes us allows us to have what and the elder gave me the language of soft eyes for ourselves as well so it can really help there's five practices which you learn them like head knowledge and there's a lot to learn then you begin to practice them and just sort of a way of being you have this shift we reframe behavior that's the first one we reframe the meltdown we reframe the angry outbursts we reframe the shutdown the i don't want to do this the tantrums you can reframe all of those We recognize stressors and we look at five domains. So the key is there that it's not just the obvious stressors. So kids living through their family, going through divorces, there's stressors. But there's also some hidden ones on kids too, right? And so we try to figure out which ones we can do something about. We become aware interoception. So it's it's a, a body awareness and recognizing, you know, when we're not in a calm state, when our kids aren't, what to do about it, and really focusing on restoring energy. But this is all within relationships. That is the key. So Mm -hmm. self-reg is a framework that you can use to think through, to apply to, it's almost like a map (laughs) and a compass, beginning to sort of figure out your way through. And I like this idea, especially as a music educator, I like this idea of practice. And I would imagine that there's some correlation or similarities, I should say, between practicing, say, an instrument and practicing new habit building like self-reg, whereas at first you're going to make a lot of fumbles. You're going to have some challenges and some difficulties, and it's going to feel a little bit unnatural and strange. You're going to have to really think about step-by-step how things work and maybe even write notes and whatever you got to do to kind of wrap your head around the whole process and then begin to implement it step-by-step and make a whole bunch of mistakes along the way. At the same time, forgiving yourself for any sort of fumbles you have in the process of becoming more fluent at the ability to be able to use the tools and strategies, if I'm correct in saying so. Yeah, it's a really smart comment. I was a yoga instructor for a long time. And so in yoga, we talk about practice as well, right? And so it's not a program. It's not something you're going to find in a package with a bunch of colored cards. And in a way, there are no mistakes. They're really only ways to learn more. So one of the things that you're doing is trying to move it away from just head knowledge, which is what we're working on right now, right? We're talking about understandings to feel it in the body and, and the understandings, the shifts. And Dr. Stuart Jenker's sayings is that see a child differently and you see a different child. That's kind of an exciting comment 
commitment to make. Oh, if I see my child differently, you could try and try to see your child differently. But have you ever had one of those moments when you learned something that you didn't know about a person and you had an instant shift, like instant empathy is what I'm thinking of. It's like, whoa. Yeah, absolutely. You just saw them differently. When you do, everything in your brain and body changes. Limbic leakages. I can sit here and say, you know, this is a really nice, but you're going to read the signs and the cues through my body language, the tone of voice. So when we genuinely see differently, it doesn't mean you have all the answers, but when you understand, okay, my kiddo's stress backpack is so heavy right now. And that's why he's given me or she's given me a hard time. They're having a hard time. When we make those shifts, we see a different child. So it's not like it's a magic bullet that's going to just take everything away, but it shifts. I think it's also realizing that there are choices you have for how you want to view things. Consciously being aware of the choice that you might be making is in terms of how you are viewing things and then deciding to ask yourself, is there another possible way to view this? Is there another possible way to see this from a different perspective and just sort of even experimenting with the different possibilities that could be even as ridiculous as they might be and then making a conscious choice as to what you feel would be the most productive or helpful way to view it that will be beneficial to your child and to the relationship that you have. Do you think that that is also part of that process as well? Kind of working through it in that aspect? in a way. Have you been through heavy separation that was (laughs) difficult on you? That was part of very insightful. That was part of the reason why I'm asking this absolutely. And so many things I want to go through here that I don't want to take up too much time with me going through some of the personal struggles that I've been with, been through, but perhaps that might be also useful and helpful to some of us that are here today. I'll tell you the reason I asked. Yes. Because when we talk about choices and anybody out there who are going through a separation or a divorce, I still remember being in the mediator. My daughter was a year and a half old to two years old. I was managing a big team of people at the time but there was something about him in this mediation that sent me through the roof and I was trying to go mediator I had good values I had good intentions we were going to stay on the same page as much as we could I just went what we would call in South Break red brain and so the reason I share that is you know I found the balance it's not always easy I could tell you all my justifications but the point here is It wasn't a choice. And so from a self-reg lens, we definitely try to look at things differently. There was a great mediator and you might have mentors and maybe you do this through your music. Someone helps us to see another side. And you feel like you have a conviction on your perspective. Like there's no possible way that this could be any different because I'm feeling it so strongly. Yeah. So from a self-break lens, to me, that's where self-break can help. We can practice all of our managing ourselves, looking at different perspectives, the strategies, practice your strategies, but it's all self-control. You're trying to suppress. Self-reg would say that went well. Yeah, that's interesting (laughs) that that happened. Yeah, and try to think about what it was that really triggered the stress response. It doesn't take it all away, but when you begin to understand yourself. So I felt a lot of pro-social stress. I I felt a sense of injustice. I felt a heavy emotion. So when I began to look at the stressors, I began to think more. Um, It still triggered it for a couple of different times, but self-reg is different because we're not just looking at the iceberg of behavior. We're looking at it. I just lost my temper. Okay, I just stormed out of the room. I just talked in front of my child and said something negative about my ex when I told myself I would never do that. Well, soft eyes and a bit of science tells us, okay, the stressors, it's like a volcano Mm. and it just kind of bursts out and that's Mm. helpful. 
because mm. I don't want to get feeling that bad again. It actually is a maladaptive mode of self-regulation. You momentarily feel better because you said what you needed to say, right? Yeah. It's okay. What would help me beforehand? Well, I know I'm not going to race into the meeting at the last minute or the conversation mm. at the last minute. Having a really nice walk that particular moment, morning, or, or saying sometimes, I just need a few minutes right now. So beginning to think about how I can look at it differently. But all of it includes looking at yourself as a human being. You can learn as much of the science as you like, and you're still going to have those moments. The soft guys for you, the more in balance you'll be able to stay. And I think that's great that you framed it that way too, is that you're somebody who teaches this and who understands it quite thoroughly, and you still have those struggles. So the struggle yeah. is normal in terms of the emotions. It's just a matter of how you work and process through that. Very long time, I can tell, but there are so many other questions I want to make sure that we go through. Let's continue. Going through separation and divorce is a very emotional time for couples. Do you mind going into depth of how we can balance our emotions to ensure our children are not feeling the effects of separation? So the balance of the emotions in particular. Emotions are communicating. We're not choosing our emotions. We tend in our society, we've been told to suppress emotions. We tell young people to be the big boy. And so there's been this messaging around emotions. It's changing and I'm happy for that, especially for our kids growing up today. But those emotions are real and they are a community communication that's happening. You're not choosing to feel angry or frustrated. Sometimes we don't even recognize what is an emotion. Our child is having a tantrum because we didn't buy something. And we think it's because we didn't buy something when really it's the frustration or that is a combination of suppressed emotions that are kind of bursting out at this particular moment at the store. A couple of things are we need to remember we can't lend our calm if we are not calm. When we recognize that our children have big emotions or that we have big emotions, we want to link up that into brain. That's what you're talking about with the music. The music is just a medium. There's different ways that people can connect. But imagine it like a Bluetooth and that's connecting between individuals and the brain science shows this, the parts of the brain that they get in, in sync. So it's why anxiety can be contagious. So can joy. Music is a great way there can be contagious, but you need to find those connections again. With teenagers, sometimes it's side by side, not face to face because the eye contact is too much of a stressor on them, but mm -hmm. they'll be able to talk side by side. So really thinking about interoception and rather than solving the problem, no matter what they did or what happened or, you know, what strong emotions come bursting out, it's recognizing, how can I find my moment of balance? You're not being selfish if you take it, by the way. It's one of the most generous things you can do for the people you love. If you need a moment, teach your kids. I think it's actually very healthy to teach your kids. It's a hard time for a mommy or daddy too, right? Sometimes I just get a little emotional. The memories leak out my eyes and I just need a few minutes. We'll talk about what we need to talk about about later. And if you have an emotions that they burst out of you in some ways you weren't planning, when you're feeling a little bit more calm afterwards, come back and talk about them. So many times we want to start talking when it's about emotions. We want to label them and name them. And it's not that that's not important. That's social emotional learning. But we don't always have those words in the moment. Or we may be parroting words or not even able to even notice what it feels like in our bodies. It's that. It's recognizing that can't lend calm if we're not calm. That emotions are communication for you. That you have individual differences, something that might be no big deal for one of your children is the hugest thing for the other. And that's okay. It's not they need to be braver or tougher or it's real for them. And a little bit of quiet, a little bit of listening can go a really long way. I like this idea of the eye contact. I remember learning a while ago that there's this primitive res 
response in our brain that goes all the way back to hunting and gathering days, especially for male hormone, for well, what's considered to be quote unquote male hormones. So testosterone is, is very, very helpful for being able to do things that are physical with our body to help us build muscle and these sorts of things. So and testosterone has helped us be able to hunt. Now, when you were hunting, you wouldn't be looking at each other. You'd be looking side by side out into the field because if you're staring at each other, you're not seeing what's potentially going to come at you and kill you. So you're not really aware of, of what's actually out there and potentially the thing that needs to be dealt with to be able to go and live prosperously, essentially. Now, the people that would be looking at each other would essentially be enemies. Enemies would stare at each other like on a battlefield. A lot of times if you're in a heightened state and you're feeling nervous and anxious, looking at each other directly in the eyes during that can heighten that those feelings and hit your subconscious. Whereas if you're looking at, and this doesn't work for everybody all the time, but a lot of times this can work as a little bit of a strategy where if you're kind of looking at each other a little bit, but staring out somewhere else and it feels less threatening. Now the threat is out there and you're dealing with something together that's out there as a team and the threat isn't here each other. I like that idea a lot. Would you say that I'm correct in saying some of these things? I'm accurate? I mean, cause this is just stuff that I've learned. Of course, I'm not, I don't have the experience and the expertise and the knowledge that you have. So I am speaking in comparison. It was some sense of, of ignorance here, but I just want to know if I'm in the correct direction saying something like this. Well, there's some science to what you're saying for sure, but it is more complex and it's actually more hopeful in a way because it is what you talked about with the hunting, the links to the hunting. If you have, I have a shepherd, if you have a big dog, if any of you are big dog sort of people, you know that if you stare really hard in, in the eyes, there's sometimes it can cause a submission or it can cause more of an aggressive sort of response. So it's actually linked a bit to what you're saying, but the science is really neat. There's a lot more to it than just the eyes. There's a great video online. It's an art installation where an artist in, in the UK, she just sits and stares into people's eyes. And there's this story. Of that. That. And she's crying and, and she's crying. And it's this, it's this lover from her past, like 20 years before, and it's so emotional and nobody says a thing. And really what's happening there is a connection, not this aggression that you're speaking about. There's a bunch of things to realize that from, we have to watch our children, watch ourselves. I'm pretty good at intense eye contact when I really get into a conversation, but sometimes I find it overwhelming. And the reason I do that is because of multiple stressors across all kinds of domains. So at the end of the day, when I'm exhausted and I've got a million things on my mind and then somebody's trying to eye contact here it actually is a lot of energy that comes off of the retina and it's more than I can handle really neat for thinking of kids I don't force eye contact on kids for cultural reasons I've worked with cultures where actually eye contact was form of disrespect so they didn't look at the adults with eye contact but I've also worked with lots of kids with autism where we want joint attention for example so we want to have shared eye contact and moments it's too much so what does that mean for interoception well you can share if you can connect with eye contact it's a good thing. But notice what it feels like and cue safety to your child or who you're talking to is a softness around your eyes, the prosody of your voice, which is a sing-songy nature versus really monotone or really high-pitched or really low. Right. Those are all cue the hunter or I'm that you're in danger. So right. really thinking about it as individual differences. Okay, good. Very good. Great stuff. Let's go on here uh, to the next question I have for you. What are some emotional symptoms that children can exhibit when parents are going through conflict and separation, specifically for toddlers first? The biggest thing you want to look for is differences change. So something getting worse, something happening more often that just basic development doesn't necessarily tell you. So if a child has been having tantrums all the time, they're still from a self-regulation lens. It, it's still telling you about 
more stress than they can manage. They need help with this co-regulation. But you might see things like tantrums. You might see excessive crying. You could see hitting, throwing things, anger, sadness, or not seeming to enjoy things that they used to enjoy. It's really any of the behaviors that seem new Mm. or seem like they've gotten worse. We're talking about separation and divorce, and it is very unique. And yet from the science perspective of stressors on the body, it's still multiple stressors that coming from the external world, the external and internal. So COVID has done this to us too. Some children are doing better, some are worse. Right. And so it's the same sort of thing. So you're looking for things that have changed. Okay, very good. So specifically things- Going to sleep, staying up at night, having nightmares is another one. And would you say this is like, we're talking about intensity, level. Definitely intensity. And, and honestly, if you're seeing things that worry you, take your children to see professionals. Okay, I'm an educator, not a psychologist. And if you're worried, definitely seek out some professional help. It is about intensity, but it's also the out of the blue nature. It's what has changed. Oh, right. my child used to really enjoy mealtime. And now they're fighting and angry all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean you don't need to wear this with guilt. It doesn't necessarily mean it is the divorce, but it could be they're picking up on the stress of the parent. There could be factors and it could also be something related to development. We're changing over time. But what you're looking for are things that are new and that your typical strategies aren't working for. Very good. Wow. Okay, great. Now, um, how about with preschoolers? Would it, is it any different for preschoolers? Some of the things you might see in preschool is the problems are happening at preschool. That can be another one where they weren't having, and you're still looking for change in all of these areas. You're hearing from the preschool that something has really changed. It's also noticing that there are really lots of highs and lows, really hard days could be signs as well. The questions really kind of start in the preschool days. My my daughter, I still remember that there were real patterns that I could see around when she would spend time with her dad, she'd be back. And then I would have all kinds of problems the day afterwards. So these are signs that it is taking its toll on, on our little person's brain and body. Okay, good. How about for pre-adolescence? Some of the things you might see, you could see these anywhere, but really argumentative. Fighting over everything is different than a toddler kind of know that you might be expecting. You might feel a real change in your relationship. Maybe your child was talking to you before and all of a sudden they're not. You're trying to equate how much of that is because of the developmental age they are at. But this particular age group, the pre-adolescence at 8 till 11-ish, is said to be one of the harder ages to be when the kids are going through a separation and divorce in the family. Because when you're younger, you don't have as much of a sense of identity my daughter really didn't know the difference. She still right. struggled with it, but she was a toddler at the time. And older teenage teenagers have a stronger sense of their own identity. So this is the group that you really want to be the messaging that this is not about you and that we can love you from different places. This sort of thing is, is a really important messaging. So this group is one that I would really, really watch for. You have to keep in mind that this is also pre-adolescence is they're heading for puberty, <laughs> right? And so there's bodily changes happening. There's friendship things that are happening. Uh, You're still looking for the shifts, but you're keeping the signs, looking for patterns in communication. If they used to talk to you, now they don't. Sleeping more than they used to, for example. Very good. And then how about lastly, adolescence and teen years? Here's where you may see more of that. You're sort of feeling like a cord's been cut kind of idea. So it's the withdrawal, not wanting to go to school, maybe anger outbursts. You could see any of these at any point. The key is differences. 
this is a changing behavior and development or other sort of shifts in our life don't necessarily explain it. And I'm worried about my child. Trust your instincts. If you're a little bit worried, think, okay, what more can I do? And then seek also advice and mentorship on it Absolutely. rather than trying to just sort of come up with answers by yourself. Yeah. In self-reg. So it depends on if you feel you need clinical support or you're and you really reaching out for support of different kinds. And it's not always a psychologist or something. I, when I went through a really hard time and I lost my mom a few years, I needed massage. Sounds strange, but that was what I needed to kind of find myself in my body again. I tried the different things. So reach sure. out for what feels it, it works. It works for you. Having an outlet of some sort. Yeah. And I think connection, who are your circle of support? Who are going to be your interbrain? Because mm. this sounds like it's all on your shoulders, but you're going through a really hard time. What are the supports that will lighten your load? Can you get somebody to help you with a little bit of cleaning and a meal here and there and these sorts of things that lighten off your load just a little bit so that you can be there for your children? And I think, and this is really important to mention, I believe, because I think a lot of people, when they feel like they're going through something difficult, they don't want to feel as if they're on top of that being a burden to somebody else. And something that I've always advocated for with anybody who I'm doing some coaching for, whether it's somebody in their teen years, an actual student, or a parent that I can see that's going through a lot of trouble, is I always try to encourage them to reach out to people that you care about, that care about you, that you're close with. Try to realize that you might not feel too good about doing that and even just let them know that. Like, hey, I don't feel too good about having to reach out to you, but I'm having some trouble here and I need somebody to help me out a little bit, whether it's just someone to talk to or someone to help you out with running an errand or, or something because I believe that it's those types of situations that help you but also gives an opportunity to somebody to build an even stronger relationship with you so it's, I look at these types of situations as opportunities rather than necessarily being a burden on yeah. somebody I found a couple of things that really helped the first one I want to just mention is that we have a Facebook for parents to parents it's self-reg parents and it's a private group nice. it's moderated by somebody on our team but it's all parents and it's a great resource for you questions like this come up all the time this idea of finding the people to support and understand you but the two things that I did in this sort of area one is I learned finally I had to hit about 40 before I really learned to say no and to realize I could say no and the world didn't come to an end Hmm. I could say no to COVID has made it more easier in some ways for anybody that's had a difficult time saying no in the past right. because they were not socializing in the same way, but I would be totally exhausted and I would be running around a million different ways trying to get my child to this and go to that event and do, and I was exhausted and I learned to say no and then to teach my child that this was what I needed for me so I could be a better me and it wasn't selfish and sometimes it was for her so that sometimes the answers were no. So I said no a lot more and I still do. But the other thing thing that helped with getting support was finding people that were willing to exchange support because that made me feel okay. I remember taking kids for the overnight. And then when I did that as a favor for friends, then I felt so much better about saying, I need the afternoon. So it became, it's sort of finding that network of people. And so much of it is just feeling heard that whatever you're feeling is validated and your frustrations and your sense of injustice around whatever it is that you're going on. Sometimes that can really make a big difference is just knowing you're 
not alone and that others are going through it too and can understand. But it does help to have a community. People that when you ask, it doesn't end up with more stress on your back. That's the thing about taking help when you're fiercely independent. So that was one of the strategies I used to do. And especially if you're going through something that's already so difficult and challenging. And on top of that, if you're feeling like you have to say yes to everybody, to everything all the time. I like this idea that you talked about. You didn't frame it this way specifically. I talk about it as energy capital. So there's sort of a certain amount of energy that you have that you can use towards a variety of different resources in a variety of different ways. And whether they're people or, or things that you need to do, errands, yourself, whatever it is. If you're not allocating that energy capital in the correct way, then you could run out of it very quickly. And then the things that you really need to attend to, you end up falling short on it to no fault of your own besides of the fact that you know you can definitely say no. Saying no is empowering and also helps you to manage that energy capital. Would you agree with what I'm saying? Yeah, there's a researcher, I can't think of her name. She is down the way of the center that talks about the shopping cart. She talks about you know how much can fit in the shopping cart and realizing that sometimes you have to make choices. So for sure. The other thing is to remember energy capital, the idea of energy is not just a theoretical idea. It's glucose. Mm. Our bodies primarily run on glucose. We do have the stress chemicals that give us bursts of energy when we need them. So when you're going through a really hard time, you're living in this very high energy place, but it's completely depleting because Mm. that's meant to save you when you need to do something really quickly. It's not meant to be on 24 seven, right? Then you're not getting restorative sleep and it's sort of, you get yourself caught in a stress cycle. So the energy capital is interesting, but also realizing when you bark at your kid at the end of the day and you were really patient with everyone else all day. And how did that happen? Your glucose, your source of your brain body energy just went that's when we reach for the things that artificially give us these these temporary jolts the kids reach for the monster drink whatever the glass of wine or the mm. bag of miss vicky's potato chips or whatever it is or gossip you know that's another source of it right, right. And all of a sudden we feel better and then we feel worse so these highs and lows are something to be really aware of not just for your children but for yourself too if you're going through these stages of highs and lows there's a chance that possibly that you're using up your energy capital in ways that are not necessarily working for you so well sort of getting this what you're saying well energy is glucose so really physiological thing then from the idea of social capital or energy capital is i like the metaphors though is interesting but it's even more you've got a glucose your body's completely depleted and you know you haven't made space for the restoration and the key is it's like on a hamster wheel how do i get off the hamster wheel and you might say well i can't control this and i can't control that and i can't control that okay which ones can you do something and that's where the nose are nice that's where the i just got to go to bed early. That's where the healthy eating and drinking water and this sort of thing sounds like lit things on a should list, but each right. little one does help. Right. So what are the little things that I can do? Having some compassion for myself, realizing that with time, this will feel better. It mm-hmm. helps as well. It does, but it's more than a metaphor. It's actually science. I think sometimes having these sorts of ways to be able to wrap our head around an idea, it helps. I use that, but I like the idea of just simply talking about it in terms of glucose, because yeah. that's yeah. easy to understand as well. We look at a bad So sometimes I use the visual of a battery and it'll charge back up, but it's empty. (laughs) Realizing that is super important. And knows before it goes empty, like at least recognizing the signs. You're on your reserves. Just like a cup pops off your phone. You got 20% left. Better charge your phone. All right. So can divorce and separation have future effects on the child once older to have their own healthy relationship? If child is, as they're getting older, they're getting more into adulthood. Are there certain things that can affect, can have future effects on your child trying to build their own healthy relationships? What can parents do to ensure their children's mental health is met during separation and divorce so that way they have an easier time later on? Remember, I'm not a psychiatrist or a 
psychologist. So I can speak to you as an educator, someone who is a knowledge translator, taking this science and trying to make sense of it personally and professionally. The attachment theorists would definitely say, yes, it can have an effect. Mm. But that does not mean it is set in stone. And I have this memory of uh, one of my best friends when I was growing up. I still remember the first time going to his house. And we never went to his house. I never really thought anything of it. And the reason we didn't go to his house was because his mom and dad had been married. I think they'd been married for 20 years or something. And they hadn't talked to each other in 10 years. Dad slept on the couch and they didn't talk. Like it wasn't just didn't really talk. They did not talk. Mm -hmm. And it was, you walked into the house and it was, I never felt so uncomfortable. And it's always stayed with me. So the one thing I'll say is children are resilient. They can handle. We try to protect them. We try to make the very best choices that we can. We really do. And, but we have to make those healthy choices for ourselves too. Being healthier yourselves is an important thing. And whether you've chosen this path or it's just sort of the one that has landed in your life, that your children really can be okay and they can learn from it. What's key, first of all, if you're seeing anything that's concerning, get some help for your child, right? Because attachment, learning about what a relationship is, learning about what a healthy relationship is. We all have this sort of vision of the perfect family and mom and dad and the white picket fence. Well, my family wasn't like that. Most families aren't like that. And there's, so we're rethinking what family means. But we can also, two areas to really emphasize here is to remember the resilience research. What we know is for children, the key to resilience is one adult whose eyes light up for that child. So that mm. one significant adult, and that can be be the tipping point for a child. Like my daughter is a very secure kiddo. She wasn't when she was younger. So I was really nervous about this very question. Like I wanted her so badly to learn what healthy was. So what I did was the best I could. I didn't speak negatively. I tried not to criticize him. I found the ways I told her over and over again, he loved her because she mm. needed to feel safe. And I actually filled that gap in for her. Mm. And he does. It's not that he doesn't, but I filled those, some of those gaps. And so realize that from an attachment lens, what you want to teach as best you can, the healthiest version of uncoupling that you can, that still keeps her or him or they at the center as love. That doesn't mean you don't have your ups and downs in your moments, but you just speak that. I'm going through a hard time. Right. And this wasn't expected, or this is harder on me, but I love you. You're safe. And so all of that also, if you have children that think it's their fault, we know that lots of children do internalize that. That messaging wipes that away. They often don't tell you that. That's especially at that 8 to 11 kind of age, that this is about us. We will always be connected because we have you and we're connected through you. And even if you're not speaking to the other person, your child doesn't need to know that. So they're they're feeling these, these healthy threads. The other thing that you can do is also tell the story of the child that represented what the relationship was at one time. There was so much joy the day you were born. You're looking and now as I share this, maybe there wasn't for you. So you have to find that moment when there was but those sorts of stories are talking about relationships but it's also realizing relationships can come to an end the love and connection can go on in sort of different ways too which is for the child and i like this idea too that you talked about it being a tipping point for your child and you touched upon this just very briefly about being sort of this person who can lead by example in terms of how to handle things emotionally i love the idea of being able to say to your child i'm just going through a hard time like 
calmly. I'm just going through a hard time. Things are a little bit difficult for me, but everything will be okay. Everything will be fine. I'm just sort of working through this and that's why I might be a little bit out of balance or something like that for the moment, but everything's gonna be fine. Just give me a few minutes or whatever it is. I think that's really nice because in essence, what you're doing is you're teaching your child, oh, that's what it looks like to handle your emotions. Yeah. That's what it looks like when you're not feeling too good. That's how you communicate that. I think that's really good. That is a great strategy because that can be so helpful, especially to a child that is going through such a difficult time growing up, puberty potentially, if they're at that age, not understanding how to necessarily express themselves, feeling all kinds of things and feeling they want to lose control. But then seeing that from their parent over and over and over and over again is reinforcing that this is the way to do it. Yeah. It's, it looks like that. Yeah, and it's also laying the layers for self-regulation, managing your energy and tension, managing mm -hmm. your stress is really what you're doing. It's not about being perfect when we can define them. You have to know your children and the age and what, what amount to share, but some vulnerability, but oh, I'm human. I didn't handle that real well. Or sorry, that just got, or sometimes I just feel overwhelmed and I don't know why that's an okay thing to say out loud. And then you get sure. feeling better. And uh, so it is, it's a positive thing, yeah. you know, and again, always through love and it's always through trying to as calm and connected as you possibly can, because that creates safety. No, that's great. Good stuff here. This is really, really good stuff. If all of you are not loving this, I don't know what to tell you this is fantastic really really helpful stuff i'm enjoying hearing this because i feel like this is super helpful to me especially when i'm working with children and they're going through some of these challenges this is a really good way for me to be able to connect with them as well by being even more aware myself so fantastic sets of knowledge now just a couple last questions here i know we're running out of time but i want to make sure that we are uh, getting all these questions could you provide us with some parenting tips that can help couples to communicate and be effective while co-parenting. Remember, that was my whole example of the mediator and going red brain. This idea of the interbrain is really important in that Bluetooth connection. So there is some science at Steve Forges. It's called neuroceptive safety. So it's not just perception. It's the limbic system that's always scanning for safety and threat. And so when we're feeling reasonably balanced, we'll look at people and we largely feel safe. We might get that sense to sort of pull back. But when we're overstressed, we see danger everywhere. Hmm. So what we want to be really careful of or be aware of is that we can cue safety in others. That's a hard thing to do because you're trying to do it with someone that you have, there's been a, a relational break with versus cueing threat. Because if you cue threat, you're just going to amp it up <laughs> and you can feel worse. I'm not saying let go of the things you need to advocate for and all of that, but finding ways in the moment when it really counts to cue safety. And one of the ways that you can do this is ask questions and listen. And it's really, you might have to be tapping your leg while you're listening or to notice what bubbles up for you. But when it bubbles up, say, why? is that such a stressor for me? Reflect on it. Keep breathing, long exhales, get the parasympathetic nervous system activated. So it's not inhales. Those actually activate the rev up. You want to rev down. Mm. <laughs> Another thing that you can do is if you're in a chair, you can push into your feet and just lift your backside, not off the chair, mm. but just enough so that you feel the muscles. That actually can be very calming to you. What you're trying to do is calm your central nervous system so you can stay calm mm. enough to get through this. And so gradually it gets easier and easier. The, the other thing is you can say, this is really important to me. I need a little bit of time. Can we keep this conversation going another day? So if you feel yourself going like this, can I call you back in an hour? And then go and do what you need to do. But if you focus on long exhales can make a difference. You're trying to sort of keep yourself present, do more listening. And when none of this works and you go red brain, like I do too, sometimes mm -hmm. afterwards go, okay, what can I learn? What was it that was so triggering for me? A sense of injustice is really hard on us. Mm. Now, on things that feel unjust are 
our triggers. But so we're strong emotions, we're tired, we're hungry, we're, you know, it's the end of the day, try to think about when the best times are Saturday mornings, the best times for you to have a conversation. I found it really hard when others were watching, I found it much easier, we do it by text. And it's there's actually I get Christmas presents now, just little ones, but there's a kindness that's happened. But it it's just texts are much easier. And I do thoughtful things, I send him pictures of moments that he would have missed. And that can be really hard. Mine was not an easy breakup. So some of those things can help because you're trying to get up to a point in your life where this isn't the center of it. It's a peripheral thing and you get back to enjoying finding the balance that you need. Yeah, I like these ideas of doing, having these little gestures of kindness and gentleness to one another, because that's also at the end of the day, it's going to help you when you have to interact with them, but also help your child because when things are nice and gentle, at least, then chances are, at least when your child's going there, hopefully a a good spot where they're interacting with your child in in a nice way and also not necessarily like doing things that are harmful. You can't control what they're necessarily going to do. If you're doing these gentle, kind gestures towards them, then there's less likelihood that they're going to have all these like bad things to say necessarily about you and have these things happen where your child doesn't feel so good and they might still have the bad things to say and you can if it's too hard to think of it as doing something kind do it they think of it as doing something strong for yourself for me and if they appreciate it great and if not that's okay that's okay i don't own their response i like that a lot so last question i know we over time but i really want to make sure we get to every single question here so lastly just any words of wisdom to leave us with today to have us focus on thought about this question because i knew it was coming and two things come to mind the one is soft eyes and i've mentioned that and soft eyes are not just about compassion for yourself or your child it's about realizing that if you had the Fitbit of the future, you know, that could look in your brain and body, there is a whirlwind of stress chemicals going through you. And you are dealing with a lot and look how far you've come. So soft eyes and realizing there's lots of things are not choice. Our brain and bodies are operating in ways that we're not controlling. They're keeping our heart pumping right now. So there's all sorts of things that are going on Mm. and a little bit of compassion can really make a difference. But the biggest one I have for you is restoration. One of the things we want to do with our children and ourselves is as much normalcy as we possibly possibly can. The routines of your life, the things that aren't about dealing with this or dealing with the stress or coping with that. It's what fills up your tank, what what brings you a bit of joy. How can you find that connection? That's the interbrain. That's all these things we're talking about. Put the technology away. Where can we spend a bit of time together? And if it's my daughter used to like me to read to her. So that was a moment, but there's no one way. It could be through music and you never talk. Nobody says a word and yet you're connected through the music that you're playing and you both feel better afterwards. Hmm. So restoration, restoration, restoration. The to-do list can wait. The more you focus on getting a bit of restoring in for yourself every day, getting a good night's sleep at night as best you can, the more that you'll have to deal with the, the bumps and the curves and the swerves that are coming in the days ahead. As much joy as you can bring in is a good thing and you deserve it. It's not just for your kids, it's because you deserve it too. Hmm. Very good, excellent. Some excellent advice, excellent perspective and some really solid tools and strategies to use to think about the difficult time that we could be going through dealing with separation and divorce and, and having to help our children manage their emotions and, and sort out how to work through what is happening with their tribe of, of people. This is great. Susan, an absolute pleasure to have you here. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. Our paths cross again. And thank you to everyone that joined in with us. Appreciate that. Dr. Susan Hopkins, everybody. Thank you very much. We'll talk soon.